Hey everyone, my name is Jonathan Brooke and this is Eyes Only. There is a movie you most likely have never heard of. It's called Five and it portrays a post-apocalyptic world after a nuclear blast destroys civilization in America. Five people are left to survive and fend for themselves. It wasn't very good. What makes it interesting is the timing it was released. The movie came out in 1951. It was the first of its kind, and it would be followed by an endless stream of doomsday films, all depicting something that was a very real fear at the time. In 1945, the world saw the devastation the atomic bomb was capable of. It terrified everyone, including our own government. The American people, for the most part, believed it was not a matter of if, but when these weapons would be used against them. Your everyday citizen was building bomb shelters in their backyards. You could literally purchase them at your hardware store. They were stocking up on supplies for when things blew up. This mindset was largely due to the U.S. government's own actions. In 1951, a 10-minute broadcast went out titled Survival Under Nuclear Attack. It showed the American people exactly what to do when that worst-case scenario actually happened. It would be one of many just like it. Every week, children would practice hiding under their classroom desks in case an atomic bomb would explode while they were in school. There's a haunting video that was played in classrooms across America. It started out with a cartoon of a turtle by the name of Bert, and it was all intended to teach kids how to hide when the bomb went off. I cannot adequately describe it, so I'll just let you listen to some of it. There was a turtle by the name of Bert, and Bert the turtle was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He ducked and covered. Ducked and covered. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. Ducked and covered. We all know the atomic bomb is very dangerous. Since it may be used against us, we must get ready for it so we know how to save ourselves if the atomic bomb ever explodes near us. Older people will help us as they always do, but there might not be any grown-ups around when the bomb explodes. Then, you're on your own. Remember what to do, friends. Now tell me right out loud. What are you supposed to do when you see the flash? The full video is about 10 minutes long. And I can only imagine it was a terrifying and scary thing for children to have to watch and think about daily. There's a section of it, though, that I didn't play for you. In it, the narrator talks about how your home can be one of the safest places during a nuclear blast. That's an interesting point, because in 1958, three little girls would be at home in their backyard when they would experience something truly terrifying. On March 11th, two sisters and their cousin were playing in their playhouse. Their father was working nearby in his garage. He could hear their laughter and games in the distance. While the girls played, they ended up wandering deeper into the woods that their playhouse was located in. It wasn't unusual for them to do something like that. The forest can be a magical place, especially for six and nine-year-olds. 
Sometime around 5 p.m., an explosion rocked the forest. The children's playhouse incinerated by the blast from it. The girl's father described the moment as if the sky was falling. The garage he was working in was nearly demolished with him inside of it. He was a former Air Force paratrooper, and he knew his home had just been bombed. Rushing out into his backyard, he discovered a scene of destruction. The surrounding trees had been flattened. The roof of his house had been blown off. A passing car in the street had been spun in a 180 and was now sitting there facing the wrong direction. The area that the playhouse had once been was now a 70-foot wide crater roughly 35 deep with smoke rising from it. At the bottom of that crater was a partially destroyed bomb. His only concern was the children. Rushing past the crater and into the woods, he searched for them in the smoke. He would find them, shaken up and slightly injured, but overall alive and okay. They had wandered the right amount of distance to avoid being killed by the blast. There had been no time for duck and cover. Only timing had saved their lives. The father's name is Walter Gregg, and his home is located in Mars Bluff, South Carolina. He knew something terrible had happened, but he didn't really understand what until men in suits with Geiger counters showed up in his yard. An 8,000-pound Mark VI nuclear bomb had just been dropped on his home, the same model that had been dropped on Nagasaki, except this one even more powerful and advanced. At 4.34 p.m. that same day, a Boeing B-47 Stratojet took off from Hunter Air Force Base near Savannah, Georgia. It was part of a training exercise named Operation Snow Flurry. The plane was heading to England, and from there it would be flying to South Africa. On board, it was carrying multiple nuclear bombs. Not long after takeoff, the captain noticed a fault light on his panel, indicating that the bomb's safety harness pin had not locked properly. He summoned the navigator, a man by the name of Captain Bruce Kalka, to check it out. Kalka made his way to the bomb bay doors to see what the problem was. As he reached around the bomb to pull himself up, he accidentally grabbed the emergency release pin. The bomb dropped out of its harness and slammed into the bomb bay doors beneath. The impact of the 8,000 pound bomb forced them open, and Kalka watched as the bomb disappeared into the sky below. It had left the plane at the exact moment for its trajectory to line up with the Greg's home. It would leave the plane and fall 15,000 feet until it eventually would crash onto their playhouse. There is a name for this type of event. They are called broken arrows. And seconds after the bomb left those Bombay doors, the pilot would have sent a radio communication stating those words exactly. Thankfully, the code word he didn't use that day was nuke flash, which means a live nuke is going to be or has been detonated. The fission nuclear core which is used to detonate this particular bomb was stored separately at the time of this mission. What was hurtling to earth was a dirty bomb with 300 pounds of conventional explosives that would detonate on impact. You know the rest of the story. The Gregg family's life would be turned upside down that day. Yet they were lucky to be alive. The family would sue the U.S. Air Force, 
and they would win a settlement of $54,000. That's equivalent to $478,000 today. Rarely does suing the government, especially the military, actually work. It was kind of hard to deny their claim, though, when the devastation was so undeniable. This story is only the beginning. There have been 32 Broken Arrow incidents that we know of. Six of those incidents resulted in a weapon being lost and never recovered. Somewhere out there, six nuclear bombs are lying there, just waiting to be discovered. They are not all in the continental U.S. either. The flight path of that Boeing Stratojet is a clear indicator of just how globally the U.S. would transport these devices. Constantly, they were being transported to every region of the Earth that the U.S. had a base or foothold in, all in an attempt to be ready at a moment's notice. In 1960, a program would go live run by the Air Force. It was called Operation Chrome Dome. Dozens of bombers, all carrying nuclear bombs, would be airborne at all times. Their pilots' eyes shielded so they can continue their mission when the bright flash of an atomic detonation happened. The planes would be refueled in air so that they could keep flying their mission. When a pilot needed to be changed out, another plane would go up before that one would come down. The U.S. feared that the Soviet Union would launch a nuclear strike on the U.S. that would wipe out all bases and leave us vulnerable and unable to strike back. That's why this Chrome Dome mission was established. These pilots were the strike force for when that day happened. And when the bright flashes of nuclear bombs would go off over the skies of America, their mission would start and they would fly directly to the Soviet Union to launch a counter-strike and to wipe out their biggest cities. It is a terrifying thought, yet it's the reality that these men lived with. Their flight paths have been declassified now. They reveal that every day from 1960 until the 1990s, these planes were flying above the U.S. They would often circle the country multiple times in one day. Their flight paths taking them all over the world, and often to the very edges of Soviet-controlled territory. With a mission this big, it wouldn't take long for something to go wrong. On January 23, 1961, a B-52 Stratofortress with a crew of eight was flying a chrome dome mission and was being refueled over the Atlantic Ocean. When the filler neck broke off, the plane began losing fuel rapidly. It was ordered to make an emergency landing, but before doing so, to hold a flight pattern over the ocean for a little bit longer to dump more fuel. The reason being to reduce fire hazard if it had to make a crash landing. While in that holding pattern, the pilot noticed that the leak had grown and they were going to run out of fuel. The plane was given clearance to land at Seymour Air Force Base in North Carolina. It would never make it there. As it entered airspace over North Carolina, it began to become unstable. Most of the crew was able to eject from the aircraft, yet not everyone would make it out before the plane broke apart, its debris falling over a two-mile radius. A farmer by the name of Bud Tyndale watched the scene unfold the tail of the plane just barely missing the roof of his house. He would say he thought the world was burning. What he didn't know was that around 2,000 feet above his farm, two Mark VI thermonuclear bombs had separated from the craft 
and were falling at 700 miles an hour, headed directly for the field near his house. The first bomb slammed into the ground and broke apart, its thermonuclear core burying itself 20 feet into the ground. The second bomb's descent was slowed when a 100-foot parachute opened, allowing it to slowly float to Earth. What was really happening, though, was that the bomb was arming itself. That parachute was part of a sequence that had been started to detonation. A countdown clock was initiated. Two of the most important safety triggers meant to stop this type of reaction had been damaged from the plane breaking apart. Unlike the bomb from Mars Bluff, this one was very capable of detonation. Its blast with a 100% kill radius of 17 miles. When recovery crews arrived on the scene, they discovered the bomb sitting upright, its parachute caught in a tree. It had gone through every stage in order to explode except one, one basic electrical safety switch that had not been triggered, a switch that had been prone to failure on multiple other occasions. This was never supposed to happen. These safeguards were meant to stop things from ever getting this close, Yet there it was, seconds away from becoming the third device of its kind to be unleashed on a civilian population. The crews that discovered it were clearly shaken up by this. This part of the story would be hidden from the public. It wasn't until 1983 that former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara admitted how close we had come that day to a detonation. Here's a quote of just exactly what he said. By the slightest margin of chance, literally the failure of two wires to cross, a nuclear explosion was averted. They were never able to recover all the core of the bomb that had been buried. They would instead encase the area in cement and cover it with topsoil. Today the area is a soybean field. No trace of what lies beneath is clearly visible. A sign mentioning the disaster can be found nearby. It's a solemn reminder of the lives that were lost that day. Both of these incidents are early on in the short yet unnerving history of nuclear folly. From this point on, the nuclear arms race would gain momentum. The US would be locked in a head-to-head -head race with Russia to create the most weapons, each side trying to make the next breakthrough in the development of a stronger version. Russia's transparency with data is murky at best. If we are to believe the U.S.'s numbers, they paint a staggering picture. In 1967, the United States reached its pinnacle of production. The national stockpile of nuclear weapons totaling 31,225. That number is not the total of production in our nation's history. That is the largest amount we have had at one time. Older models would be phased out and newer ones would be developed. It is important to understand the scope of what we have done. All this is why it is rather remarkable that we have only had 32 incidents. One is bad enough, but when you look at the scale of operations, it is worth noting that aspect. Scientists and engineers have actually done a good job at creating safeguards to ensure that these bombs don't accidentally detonate as easily as one would think, especially when considering one specific thing. The B-52 bombers being used for Chrome Dome and many other missions were never built to fly continuously 24 hours a day. They would become worn out quickly, 
and would be prone to crashes. That is exactly what you can see happening. As I said earlier, these two incidents are just the beginning. More planes would fall from the sky, carrying their deadly cargo with them. Submarines would become part of what is called the nuclear triad of land, air, and sea defenses. Miles below, in the dark depths of the ocean, things would inevitably go wrong. These stories are ones of tragic loss of life and devastating long-lasting consequences. I plan on telling these stories in episodes titled Broken Arrows in the months to come. If all of this seems like a lot to you, well, you are not alone. There has always been a consistent and steady voice of dissent against the use and proliferation of nuclear weapons, both in the United States and the rest of the world. John F. Kennedy fought for a ban on nuclear weapons testing. He saw it as the first step towards complete disarmament. His ban lasted a very short period, and he would never live long enough to see an international treaty come about. In 1996, the United Nations created the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Four nations refused to sign it, rendering it unratified to this day. The United States was one of those four. The slow and steady march continues. Production presses on. These weapons still a huge part of our arsenal and our defense. When will it all end? No one knows. As long as these weapons exist and humans have their fingers on the trigger, one thing remains a certainty though. There will be more broken arrows. Thanks for listening.